0: Just, boy, I remember saying to you guys um, a year, year and a half ago, how much I was losing it, and um, what you were going to have to deal with, Mm -hmm. with my, (laughs) 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 oh God, it's so good to have friends, (laughs) who needs enemies when you've got friends? (laughs)
1: Devil I used don't to. Oh, don't <laughs> don't blame the devil.
0: Just like you and me, somebody else did it. No, that's yours. A bit more, cross closer for
1: her. <laughs> God.
0: Let's let's a prayer. The name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for some of our friendships. <laughs> um for our life from you um, for the gift of yourself in the mass most especially there is behind it a, a horrifying crushing crucifixion um, that you pass on to us the gifts of it and ask us to share in it i want to offer a special thanksgiving um for tom and linda and their daughter um, For a celebration that they're approaching and a great blessing for all of them. Um, They would not come to this day without your help. True for all of us, um, whatever struggles we bear. Anyway, let a blessing be upon them in this upcoming celebration. Um, Ask a blessing for all of those um, struggling with ailments or (coughs) friends who are struggling from ailments Um, um, I'd like to ask a special blessing for Suzanne today. and Let the operation, the procedure, go well. Surround her with your protection. Let the doctor's hands, the instruments she works with, be sure. Let it go well, protect her, and let her recovery go well. Um, I ask um, a special blessing on all that we do with these works. Um, The most important thing isn't just to know them, it's to live them. So whatever they give to us, help us to make it living, all these things, so they become more part of our lives, that we're more able to bring more of you to what we do. We um, offer these thanksgivings and these prayers, um, the wounds, the aspirations, the longings, whatever we carry in our hearts, Um, in your name, Christ our Lord, amen. Hi, Lewis. Okay, quick. Let's see. Quick. Can you pull out? Um, does anybody have the the lyric packet? i You don't. Even if you don't have it, <coughs> do you have it. Do you? Do you have it? non It's done. Well, no. It's all it's the lyrics. Yeah. Lyric, Is the lyric here? I've got. Do you have the lyric? Is that what you're talking yeah, but is the lyric in it? Oh, I don't know. have a lyric? Oh, here. Here. I've got it. You don't even have to just listen. Don't search, because <laughs> for our poem today, I want to read one of the songs. Okay? Don't even look, just, you know it's good to hear. Really, get get out of your head and your eyes, just listen, let the, let the sound. Remember I've said forever that um, one of the best things you could do for all of this, and you know how serious I take this stuff, one of the best things you could do is read these aloud, because all, Homer's, the Iliad, all of the ancient works were put to meter, to music, and we've lost that. And they were oral, it was a part of an oral tradition. Remember in the Odyssey when we did this work, Odysseus sits down in a court and tells his story. But every one of them are, are metrical. I can't I can't print on, I can't remember the first lines of the Iliad in Greek. But they were sung. So music was always a com- component. This is I'm gonna go so directly to what we're doing with Chaucer. I'm just gonna be repeating a point that I made last week, and to me it's it's extraordinary. All of these were musical because the underlying assumption was that there was an order and a beauty and a harmony to everything in the universe. It was a reflection of the divine. If you go home and read these, you're left in the silence of your head, which means you're making it angelic. There's no body; it's just thought. Does thought have a body? If it does. It's the thinnest of bodies. In that, in that. Um, Unincarnated state, we approach something angelic. You, you know that I think that's one of the problems with the Protestant mind, to the extent that it loses the body, the sacredness, the, sac- the sacraments. We tend to live more and more in an angelic, angelic abstractions of our head, and we get removed from the concrete world. We don't engage, we don't risk it. So these things are meant to be sung, always. Uh, that's why I've been doing the lyrics for song. So put your notes away, just listen to it for the morning. Okay, I'm gonna read two Psalms. And remember, um, the Psalms that David wrote that all the Psalmists sang were put to a lyre, you know, the, the ancient instrument. Um, it's from lyre that we get lyric. That's its source. So the beginnings of the lyric tradition are Old Testament, that ancient world. So, taking us (coughs) back, I'm going to read two for their bearing on uh, what we're doing. Psalm 127. It's the psalmist acknowledging in praise (coughs) that (coughs) to do anything without God is to undo it, to undermine it. The only way that you can assure anything you do is to carry God with you because otherwise it won't be lasting. We got that explicitly from the weakness. Yeah. So unless you have God helping you build your house, I'm sorry Barbara's not here, pass that on if you talk with her. Um, do, do. Yes. Um, if you're building a house without God, you know what's the three piggies? It, it will come down. Psalm 127. <clears throat> Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except, Lord, keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them, they shall not be ashamed they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Kids raised well will be there at the gate defending the mother and father of the city against enemies. That is, if we raise our kids with God, they'll be able to better take care of whatever it is they're going to do. So, um, so that was Psalm 127. Psalm 137. This is, remember, written in captivity and the put the the psalmist makes clear that um, um, it's almost impossible for us to find our original voice outside the temple. Remember they're in exile, they've lost their homeland and the most important thing in their homeland was their temple, that's where they did their worship. Now they're slaves. So there's a sense in which they can't speak in that original tongue they had once they, had become slaves when they were taken captives. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not yet, I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, raise it, raise it, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall he be who requites you with what you've done to us, Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock." Um, the, 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 the lyre, the lyric, the psalm, is a lament expressing it, to the psalmist's awareness that he's lost that original voice. And I've been saying from the beginning that one of the, the functions of poetry, one of its properties, is that it's trying to recover that original voice we had in Eden in the garden. Um, There's no way in which Adam and Eve could have said anything to each other except in poetry. There would have been nothing but harmony and order to anything they said. They were one with God. There was, Boethius, there was nothing that wasn't in perfect order, right? Love, the love between them, the love for him was absolute. There were no tensions, no conflicts as a whole. Everything they did existed in a harmony. There was no fall or the effects of the fall. There's no way they could have done anything except in poetry, yeah? It had to, be, it had to express an indescribable beauty, a harmony, because love was absolute, complete. All poetry, I've been arguing, is an attempt to recover the garden, to, to recover that original voice man had. Why else can we read poetry? The businessmen say to their sons, "Get a job." <laughs> That's Hawthorne's great Hawthorne's great lament in the Scarlet Letter, in the opening of the Scarlet Letter. He, he talks about the men who look down on poetry because it does, it's not profitable. Remember, the end of poetry is an end in itself. It's not supposed to make money, or you know, it's supposed to return us to that sense that we we can rest because we're in our final end. We're there. The modern society is defined in terms of means without ends. It's a proliferation of means. They go on forever. You produce more so you can long for more. Once you've had those, you want your society to produce more. It's just, it, it creates an artificial longing that can only be artificially satisfied. It's the society of means without ends. It goes on because it's no longer connected to a final end. Yeah? Because the final end, there's none of this restless striving. You're at home. The peace is there. Your love is complete. You return to God. Your love, you indwell with one another. So poetry is, is, a, is always an attempt to recover that harmony, that, long, that rest. When, you read a, when we read a poem, we rest in it. Pornography, didactic literature. Didactic literature has an end outside of itself. I want you to do this. Pornography, I mean you name it, whatever. Poetry is autotelic, its end is in itself. All art is autotelic, its end is in itself. It's like a game, why do you play a game? For another reason? No, you play a game because of the good in itself, you enjoy it. You know, I think about the horror of basketball players who are now envious because they're only getting 50, <laughs> They're only getting 15 million dollars a year when some their rival is getting 25, and they don't want to stay on that team anymore unless they can, you know. So they love the game for itself. They used to as kids, which is the sad thing. When we were kids, we loved to play a game, right? Just hopscotch, go out. the The end was there. That's the nature of game. That's what games mean. Poetry takes the same nature. We read it for itself. It's supposed to be contemplated, the thing in itself. (coughs) So the Jews are lamenting, here the psalmist is lamenting, he's lost his voice, how can we sing a joy? We've lost our home. So the poet has always been the person in exile. He's the one aware of the world that we've lost. His song, whether it's in joy or grief, is an attempt to get us back to the garden. Okay? Any so those two songs for this morning. Okay? When you read these things, you pass that back. Yeah, thanks. Okay, let's let's start. Just a very brief review I want to get the trusted quickly. <laughs> Um, remember that Plato's great critique of of the um, of the poet was that only the poet who came out of the cave who saw the eternal things would be a good poet because whatever his subject in our world he'd have to render it in a way that showed what was unchanging, what was eternal what was universal and I'm putting Chaucer in that category if it's not clear I hope I can make it clear what we're doing but. In The Knight's Tale and in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, we had both poets taking the Theseus story. The importance of it is, remember, Theseus is traditionally the founder of Western civilization, with all of his heroic deeds. He's the one that led to Athens, and Athens is the first instance of a democracy in the world. When you set Athens against Babylon, or any of the towns in Africa, or China, you know the Great Wall. Any any of the great cities, you find a very different city. We've gone through the city before, so I don't want to do it again. But remember, for Aristotle, the polis, the polis, the city. It's not quite what we mean by city, but for him, the polis was the mean between a tribal world or um, one of the massive civilizations like China or India with the Great Walls and the pyramids and things like that. Because in it, in the city. Something happens that doesn't happen in either one of those extremes. In the, in the larger dynastic worlds, China, India, um, technology rules, so you've got the great walls, the hanging gardens of India, or you know, whatever those great technological... We're in that, by the way, we're in that world, and, and we're, we're caught between those extremes in our world. Um, the individual isn't known. Do we, is any of those people who built the pyramid, any one of those hundreds of thousands of slaves who built the pyramid ever named no, the individual doesn't exist. It's the glory of the emperor. In a tribe, people would have known the individual, but the, tribes, um, the tribe li- limits what can happen to the individual because the individual can never fully realize its potential. It's caught in what, what Shakespeare or Aristotle would call the bloodline. It's the tribal line. You're, you're kept at a level of necessity. So those two extremes. The city comes into existence as a whole to help the individual perfect himself. So it's only in Athens, in a democracy, in which the individual, with the help of everybody, that's the tension there, but the help that we receive from other people helps us to realize a perfection that is never realized in either of the other extremes. Not in the tribe, not in the... I'm I'm not finding a word for it, those massive dynastic... You know, regimes. You all following? So the cities, it's important, but I want to add a note to it. Why we why were even focusing on it here? I want to come to the species story again, but in a minute. Why is the city important? Think about the difference. The preoccupation of the modern w- world, world, particularly since Freud, is intergenerational. It's Jewish. Harold Bloom spoke about Freud's Jewishness. Bloom was Jewish. He was looking at Freud as one of the leaders of the Jewish world in the modern world. It's very Jewish, sins of the father. It's biblical, it's Old Testament. The preoccupation is intergenerational, what my mom did to me, or what my dad did to me, or my grand, you know, that that gets passed on. And Freud, it's fixed, it's determined. He called it polymorphous, polymorphous perverse. That what determines in the edible complex, what determines the behavior, the, the way we can, the model of the explanation of our behavior is um, familiar, And it's horrible. A, a dark Manichaean element enters our way of understanding ourselves. Why was this not the intergenerational? The intergenerational is always unimportant. It's there in the beginnings, in Aeschylus and Homer, you know that. But it's never limited to that. And it's interesting that for the poets, the is as important as the intergenerational thing is, it was, it was never the governing model. When you go back to the poets, what you find is the city is the dominant. And remember the origins of the city are biblical. Enoch is the founder of the first city. And the city comes into an existence when man first attempts to live on his own without God, to be self-sufficient. So there's everything great in the city, but there's everything bad in it. Um, but here's the point I want to make. Our, remember Boethius. We, we we will never understand ourselves without knowing our beginnings or ends. What were our beginnings? According to Biblically, our faith, the garden. Our relationship with God was whole. Our relationship with each other, we loved properly because we loved God. He was our creator. That love was brought to our relationship with each other. That's what Adam and Eve had. That was lost in the fall. But clearly, you know, Um, recreate and have dominion? They were intended to multiply. So even even if the start was the garden, the end was the new Jerusalem, the city. And if you've read Revelation, you you know it's really interesting to to read Revelation. It's presented almost like a garden. There are walls and trees, but, but the way it's described is something natural. City's not artificial as we know it not an artificial, rationalistic con- construct. It's like the garden, but it's a city. It's all about God's people g- gathered. So the, the city has always been a governing paradigm because it's in our it's it's psychically a paradigm of our souls. So when you watch Shakespeare, Shakespeare deals with the city because that's the governing paradigm. Al- almost all the great authors do. So it's important to keep in mind the city for what we're doing because it's only in the city that we fully come to understand who we are by our relationships with each other. Because the family relationship, as important as it is, isn't sufficient in itself because there are other forces, other things going on that impinge on the family, that mold it, that shape it, that affect it. And you know that it can often be disastrous, the effect of our surrounding on our kids or ourselves. So the city was important. Theseus was seen as the founder of Western civilization. It led to Athens, which is the the beginning image of Western culture. Okay? Now, sorry for the digression here, Chaucer goes back to it, and we've gone through it so I don't want to go through it before, but he takes that. But what he does is Christianize it. So Chaucer, I mean, Theseus, remember, oversees the battle between um, Palamon and Arcee and Emily. And the resolution of that problem is each one of them has to give up his will in order to make a sacrificial love. So, Chaucer takes the Theseus story but Christianizes it. So, he's carrying the past forward, which is what we're all asked to do, and trying to redeem it by what he does. Because otherwise, we all know, I think most of us know, the disorders of the past can become so onerous. They're so hard to change. But that's our task. Shakespeare does the same thing. He takes the Theseus story, except you know that Shakespeare consciously sets it in the city. The lovers are forced to go outside of the city, and when they go into the forest, they're almost going to kill themselves. The problem is how to get them back into the city. Because at the beginning, the problem is law, the structure of the city, and love are irreconcilable. Remember, Aegeus the Father says, to her, his daughter, Hermia Mary marry Demetrius. She refuses, and, and Theseus says, if you don't obey your father, you're either gonna be killed or put into exile. So the problem for Shakespeare is how to reconcile law and love. By the way, I, and there's not a question in my mind, but that goes back to Christ on the cross, because he was answering an injustice, something unlawful, or crimes, with love. That's the great challenge that Christianity has left all of us with. How do we bring the two of those together? It's much easier to do one over the other. You've heard me preaching that. Shakespeare does it. I don't want to go back into that. Oberon or poetry is fundamental. If, if we see him as, a, as a, a figure working with the imagination and what he does with love to help bring the lovers to a lawful state so they can return. And you remember what happens at the end in the play when the, when the mechanics are doing the play on Pyramus and Thisbe. Piers of never get back. Where are they? At um, what's Egeus's tomb? I'm getting that name right, Egeus. Because Egeus' tomb. I think I'm getting the name. Because he was he was the founder of Babylon. So Shakespeare's showing us the East has no way of reconciling because they don't make a place for Christ. And you know that's true, Judaism, Islam. The defining principles of both of those religions is the law. <coughs> they don't know the mercy of a God who reconciled himself with the law. So they have no way to reconcile those. What Shakespeare's showing us is that West has a principle of renewal. So his carrying Athens forward He's Christianizing it the way Chaucer did, but he's also bringing in a philosophic dimension that I don't think Chaucer does. Is that clear? So both poets are carrying the past forward, just the way poets have been doing. But but uh, according to changes in time, Chaucer's redoing the Theseus myth, he's Christianizing it, very clearly. Shakespeare's Christianizing it, but he's also bringing in a secular, he knows Machiavelli. The problems are far more complicated for Shakespeare. He he knows he's got to answer problems in the modern city. That's why the city comes into focus there. Because Shakespeare knows, probably more clearly than most moderns, what the modern problems are. The secular city comes into existence. It's, It's a completely different world from the world that Chaucer knew. Is that all clear? Okay, so um, we're moving forward with Chaucer and we're pointing towards Shakespeare right now, just to recall some of Chaucer's important theme, bonum est diffusium, goodness is diffusive, that's Boethian. goodness is diffusive, it's everywhere, no matter, even if we're in the fall, we know, certainly not from Buitus, there's nothing going on that isn't being turned to good. How could we be living with a good God if that weren't so? You know, we may not see it. Manichaeans certainly won't see it, or, or religions with a Manichaean element won't see it. What they'll see is horror, depravity, evil. Goodness is diffusive, it's everywhere, it's overflowing in our lives everywhere. Do we see it? Particularly when it's hard when things go bad. You know, when we lose our job or Something happens in our family or the back door gets wrecked or, you know, it's just, I mean, we have to remodel our house and we're dealing with nightmare construction problems and, um, have to go upstairs and sleep. Um, I mean, we all know those problems. Um, something in the fridge goes out. Um, and I think about the ice maker that's gone out a couple of times with us and you want to stamp your foot and crush the thing and (laughs) these damn things. Um, Bonum is Wait. What was Chaucer's dictum? There is no bad fortune. There is no bad fortune. Theseus put it well, and we get it in one of the other Chaucerian stories. Make a virtue of necessity. How well do we do that? Make a virtue of necessity. When things are going bad, that's an occasion for us to be good. Are we doing God's work, or are we grumbling and complaining? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be honest about myself for a second here. Um, you, you guys are following, right? Mm-hmm. Great theme of Chaucer. Um, goodness is diffusive. It's everywhere. Um, whatever the difficulty, and remember we talked about this, what this priest said to Suzanne, this been so important verse here, Be thankful for everything. It doesn't mean how horrible it is. If we're with God, there's a way through that cross to joy. Can we call on those things? Can we ask Him for the help to help make that happen? So that we're working with God to try to bring good out of evil. Is that what we're really doing? Think about the times when I'd like to wring some people's necks and people say count to ten. I would say, say Boethius 10 Boethius, Boethius. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: the, se- the second great theme is love. That it, it, Love permeates the Canterbury Tales. All of the pilgrims are on their way to Canterbury, right? That's their aim. The irony, the comic irony, and this is so important, the comic irony is every one of them is bitching, complaining, envious, wanting to get back, take vengeance, and Chaucer is exposing our, us, our world, ourselves, to us on this holy pilgrimage. Why is he so happy? Because he's aware of the ironies. He can celebrate them. People on the um, pilgrimage may not be, but what he's giving us is a celebration, exposing these foibles, but helping us to laugh at them. That's his great gift. His faith is that, put that same thing in the hands of a modern, what form would it take? Cheerful, happy, rhymes. Tragedy. Huh? Oh, huh? Tragedy. Yeah, or what's the word, meaninglessness? The, that's all, it's all meaningless. It's chaos and, um, sorry, I got in my mind. It would be meaningless. They'd write a story and um, absurdity. They, they'd be showing the absurdity of our lives. That's more common among moderns. They would write a story and you're left at the end of it with the absurdity of it. That life is meaningless. That's so for Chaucer? Hmm. No, he's finding meaning everywhere because he's got he's got Christ and he's got Boethius, and So love is the great theme and it's interesting to watch him do this because remember he starts with a knight's tale where we get a noble image and i tra- I talked about the three stories, right, is the door and we watch it descend because we go from the Miller's Tale, where um, um, Nicholas is having an affair with um, Allison, and Absalom comes to woo. And we, you know, I've I, I described those stories where um, Nicholas sticks out his rear, and Allison puts out her rear, lets out a fart. Nicholas comes out, and Absalom comes back with a branding iron and hits him in his hole. And, and, you know, images of thunderous farts and holes and scouring asses and, or arses and, you know, you hear that stuff and it's ridiculous and we're meant to laugh because it is hilarious. But we're, we're at another level. And we go from there to the Reeves tale where the Alan and John jump into bed and the women are delighted. I talked to one of the parishioners who was so offended at that and talked about it in terms of rape. Like, there's no rape in it at all. The women are quite clear, they're glad to do it. So Chaucer is showing us every, the love as it exists, not the way we want it, not the way we want it. We can't twist it to make it fit us. That's, I hope that's crucial. The world's a mess, always will be. He's showing love at every, in every story, everybody gets what they deserve, each at their own level. But what he's showing us are the different levels of love. And the, and the last one, the retail, Tale, it gets close to something brutal. The two men are kicking the husband, the miller. And he has is, he is violently cheated people forever. You know, I mean, he's really screwing people a lot. He's taking their money. In today's retails, Tales, we're going to be looking at people in the church who are using the church to gain money. We're back in Dante's hell. They're using spiritual realities. For themselves, I mean, we're entering a dark world, so it's not like we're descending. We're not. It's the Chaucer showing us different levels of goodness, and the way in which love works, and the way in which justice is always at work, bringing about some end. But love is important to all of them, you, even if it's violated or mistreated. Or love is at the center of all of them. Okay. The the theme of poetry. Words. Um, I want to touch on this just for a moment. I've already spoken about it. You know, the poet is attempting to recover. Th- this is so much larger for me than the, than the book makes obvious. It's so subtle, but to me it's absolutely crucial. Chaucer is telling stories th- that he heard from people on this pilgrimage. So uh, there's an irony here. There's dimensions of meaning, of meaning within meaning. Every one of the stories that Chaucer tells is a, is a story that's already been told, generally from um, Boccaccio, who was an Italian who lived before Chaucer, and some, some from Petrarch. And they were inherited from other poets. Where did, where did Odysseus get his stories? Wait, where, sorry, where did Homer get his stories? Homer lived 800 years after the Trojan War. Where did he get it? There was an oral tradition. Stories got passed down. So the story that we have is more than twice told. Every story that Shakespeare wrote had already been written. The great great artist never thought to be original meant to do something nobody else has done before. It meant to take what has already been done and bring something new of it. The Theseus story. Chaucer goes back to take the Theseus. It's been written a million times. Does he treat it the same way? Absolutely not. Shakespeare *Midsummer some night's dream. He taking something new? Absolutely not. Moderns would look at that and say, "Horrible plagiarism! Get real, Jesus Christ! Get real." There's nothing that's new to us. The question is, the question for every one of us: What will we bring to it? What we've received. Here I'm again. The calling for each one of us is to pick up our past, redeem it by what we do. Are we doing that? Are are we th- through the love that we've been called to bring? Are we burying the past, carrying it forward, changing it as we go? That's our job. That's what these poets are doing. So all of the stories had already been told. Chaucer got them from Boethius. The irony is, he's re- he's telling what the pilgrims themselves had told. Because remember, every every pilgrim supposed to give two tales on the way to um, the shrine and two back. We don't get that. I mean, Chaucer never completes it. We we're only getting one on the way there and we never get there. But the point is, he's telling stories. Now, is he telling them exactly as they told them? No, because he's putting them in rhyme. Now, who cares? Lots of, most, I guess, I would assume 99.9 of the teachers are going to say, Chaucer's writing in rhyme royal. Every two lines rhyme. Occasionally, he writes in royal cup for royal standard. A, B, a B B C C. That's the only exception. is the, the royal stanza or the royal couplets. I'm going to read something in a minute that is going to be comic, but I, because I think it'll go your way. But he's already heard this. He's he's reporting what he heard, but he's put it in poetry. So what we get in the in the tales are all these men are at each other, trying to get back, talking, almost fighting sometimes. The only one that brings them together? The poet. The <coughs> poet. And I'm going to claim that he brings a quality of love to them that the people themselves didn't have. Is that clear? To me it's pretty remarkable. Now what about the form of this? Because I, I I think I hit you over the head with I gotta I gotta repeat this again. Every one of his stories is put in royal couplets, or royal stanzas. Lots of teachers are going to say, this is his technical thing, it's it's just technical. If there's any indication of the way in which people read badly, that is. Because what they're going to do is take the story, the theme, and separate it from its form. The greatest thing that I've been telling you from the beginning, and there's no way you can fully understand it, because you haven't spent your life in literature the way I have. But almost all readers are gonna take a story, abstract it, in an idea, from its form. They're gonna lose the rhyme. Who cares about the rhyme? I do. Chaucer did. He put everything he did in rhyme. Why? Because and here's the thing I just don't want anybody to miss. No matter what Chaucer's describing, it can be it can be a spiritual evil as it is in the Partner's Tale. It can be the Reaver's Tale where two men are kicking a guy brutally on the floor. It can be the Knight's Tale. It, doesn't, it does not matter what he's ta- at every, no matter what he's doing, no matter how horrible the description he's giving us, it's in rhymes. You can't read without hearing rhymes. Why? Because there's nothing going on in the world that isn't in harmony, that isn't being worked towards a good. Every story has a good outcome. Orally, it's a way of showing beauty and harmony. Goodness is diffusive. It's at work. Do we hear it? Take a, Listen to a modern teacher, and the modern teacher is going to say, it's a technique, it's an ornament. He's made it right. Because they're not going to see the connection. If you've read Boethius, and, and you're thinking about it all, how is it possible to keep describing some of the most horrible things and be cheerful or experience a harmony? How many of us, go back to what I said, how many of us, when the, the ice drawer in the fridge goes out, you know, or the lock on the garage door goes out, how many of us are thankful or sing a song? Or, or when something's going wrong with our children, a divorce takes place. How many of us can bring a gladness or a hope? Remember, hope's not real. Hope's not real what, in, until we have no reason for hoping again. Faith isn't real unless we have no reason for holding up. Love's, They're all transcendent realities. Love doesn't mean anything until we have no reason for loving anymore. Because then we're doing it too much for ourselves. Is everybody following? So how many of us, when the car goes out or the garage door goes out, um, or you have to have a colonoscopy, or you know whatever. <laughs> how many, um, how many of us are cheerful? How many of, us, are you following? <laughs> I didn't even put that on my.
1: I was cheerful
0: when it was over. <laughs> <laughs> are you all following? What the put? Po- he's he's helping us to experience a harmony and beauty no matter what the circumstances are so it's implicitly we're being helped to feel feel not just know in our heads i hope that's clear getting an idea it is but hearing those sounds experience the harmony line by line that's why you've got to read it aloud experiencing the harmony line by line and, and know that it's carried through no matter what helps us to feel a harmony and a goodness it's 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 being it's diffused it 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 never lets up it's sustained no matter what's going on so when we read Chaucer, it's important to not just get the theme, that's our habit from school, it's to realize the poet is giving us something else. Something's coming to us through poetry that we can't get any other way. I was just going to say that with all that rambling, it's impossible to take those stories seriously. seriously. Yeah. So it, 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 he's literally preventing you from... Going in the wrong direction with the stories. Yeah, it's a, and it's a you tragic laugh. story as opposed right. to you know something else. Yeah, right. yeah. Because some of them. I mean, that's why. Remember, I said there is no tragedy for a Christian world for the pagan, because for a guy to choose hell is absolute stupidity. It's not like he didn't have a choice or couldn't do anything. Because there's no sin you can commit, none, none, in our faith that won't be forgiven if you go to him. I wonder if in some ways that's why it's a couplet, because you, the rhyming is happening so frequently that, you know, if it was like a rhyme every fourth or sixth stanza mm-hmm. or something, when well, you still have a chance to kind of let the, the tragedy story, of the right. story overwhelm you. Right. But if it's rhyming every other line, it just it can't happen. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. It's a really good way to put it. I'm glad you said it better. Isn't this amazing? And, and, what teacher is going to get that across to a kid coming out of Chaucer? God, there's such a joy. I, I remember my first experience of I didn't understand all this then, but I remember reading him in graduate school, and I remember the teacher and reading the critic's reading, and the, the greatest discrepancy, I mean, it just cut through me like, like a sharp knife. When I read Chaucer, I didn't understand anything, but I read him, you can't read him and not feel cheerful and say, this man's faith is extraordinary. He's telling stories of adultery. Adultery all the time. It's the amour courtois, the courtly love romance story. adultery going on all the time. He's not overwhelmed by it. He's not caving in. I mean, he's just sustainably, constantly faithful. His faith is almost unshakable. And there's a cheerfulness in that. You know, I mean, you really, I mean, it's hard to read Chaucer and not, be glad because they're so coming. I I can't remember a a critic who got any sense of that in his criticism. You know, it just would cut it up, it would kill it. Um, Because of our minds. The intellectual, the analytical mind, what what the analytical mind will do without a good heart. Chaucer's helping us to recover a good heart. Okay. So um, two last things since we're here, and then I want to look at stories. Last week, I think, I may be wrong, but when I read the story about, you know, the fart passing like thunder and kissing the hole in the hair, you know, and when, I, I think I didn't quite, I saw some faces, but Suzanne said she was aware that some people just dropped their heads and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I want to, I've got to say this, because to, to me this is not a small matter. One of the things, I think, I can't remember if I, I hope I put this, I'm not sure I did. One of the things that Chaucer does for us is he helps us to recover a Catholic sense of the body in a modern world that hates it. After Calvin, after Luther, the body is despised. Remember, according to the Protestant theologians, the effects of the fall were complete. Man's depraved. He's depraved. Everything is depraved. Without Christ's grace, uh, man lives in a state of depravity, physically, spiritually. Calvin hated the body, explicitly, said hated. We got this in Faulkner, because I, and I, we got some of this in Melville. Remember I said in Melville, Melville was exercising Protestant demons. He was exercising that notion of predestination. That was Ahab's great struggle. How, how, how can this evil exist in the world and somebody be predestined to this end, it it killed him. That was his tragedy. Ishmael comes out of that. Faulkner's doing the same thing in the town, and in Light light in August, which we didn't do, but remember in the the mansion, the town and the hamlet, there were these men who talked about what was going on sexually in terms of abomination. Abomination. The, The affair between Eula and the mayor you know the people look because that was a respectable society you didn't do that the difference between respectability and holiness is there's no hiding in holiness in respectability it becomes enabling because people hide behind it we saw that Chaucer's aware of it, the harm it can do. Before the Reformation the body was holy now stop and think about this for a second Chaucer can talk about farts, peas, penises, breasts. I mean, he doesn't fart without embarrassment. Why? Christ entered a human body. Did Christ eat? Did he go to the bathroom? Yes, he did. Is there any organ in the human body that by itself is disgusting? Absolutely not. In a Puritan world, think about the disorders that mindset is set in on the human body. It's something to be disgusted about. There's no way a modern, a, a, a medieval, Catholic could have, failed. I mean, he could have done that in his sin with his own guilt, but not with his worldview, because Christ sanctified the body. The body is the place of the Holy Spirit. We can violate it. We do all the time. They do here all the time. Um, adultery, you know, farts. I just want to make this clear. Chaucer's saying to us, there's nothing to be ashamed about in the human body. You cannot read these things, fart. You can't speak, the, I am, you can't speak these words in public without making people blush. A fart is thunderous. <laughs> Say that in public and people are going to look at you. See, see how strange you really are.
1: <laughs> anyway, I just
0: want to underscore this, because when we, we're, we live in a pure world we have for centuries. It's so, I, I thought one of the great gifts of our modern world was theology, of the body. What Pope John did with that book to me was, that was a doctor answering a, a disorder in the way that we look at our bodies. Chaucer can laugh about all this stuff because he doesn't look at it that way. He, he was overweight, very, very overweight. But he could laugh at it. Today there's this implicit puritanism that we carry with us in so much of what we do. And I think it does harm to the body to our souls. Chaucer's helping us to laugh. He's helping us to laugh, to recover a stronger faith, to not let the, the sins, our sinfulness, weigh down on us so much. So all of that's not explicit. It's not a moral in a story, but you can't read him without taking that stuff out of him. You know, if you're experiencing the body and all of the silly stuff that we do, Just remember, Christ ate. He had to pee. (laughs) He had to go to the bathroom. He had a body. That's our God. Calvin hated the body. It just makes me shudder when I think about the effects of this stuff. Okay? Any questions or comments before we look at our things today? I'm I'm just going to go through these things very quickly. Let me take a break. Doc, I saved some stuff for you, but I forgot you couldn't, but I'll, maybe after. it for me, I'll leave a Okay. Glad you're here. Any, any comments or, say the piece for Doc. Keeping an eye on you, Tom.
1: Sneaky. <laughs> uh, He's just enjoying his body.
0: <laughs> I'm glad he is. I'm glad he is. <laughs> Any <laughs> comments or? <sighs> for... so my sore, but <laughs> <laughs> just remember, however much we're we're supposed to be working on virtues, too. All of us. That comes from Chaucer, too. Our church calls us to penance. You know, we're, anyway. He's a wonder, I mean, he really is a wonder. And it's, he's so different, so you know, you, if you read Chaucer and, put, and and read Shakespeare, you realize that you're in two very, very different worlds of Chaucer. And I've said this before, you know, I think you're, you're in a position of, God, what you guys have, this is amazing to me, to think about what you guys have. When we were in Dante, you know, that I said, I thought Dante was on the verge of the modern world, that I, I really think Dante's the first modern, He writes in 1300, Chaucer's writing in 1400, a hundred years later. But remember, Dante's in in Italy, he's in Rome. He has that Catholic background, Aristotle, all of it. You, You read Dante's treatment of hell, and you feel like you're going past Chaucer. When you get to Shakespeare, you almost feel Dante and Shakespeare live in the same world. They're full of intrigues, political battles, killings, betrayals. You go to Chaucer and you feel like you're almost in an idealized world. That he's he doesn't quite reveal the spiritual depths that Dante does, and Shakespeare. But when you put Shakespeare and when you put Chaucer and Shakespeare together, you really feel like you're leaving a medieval Christian world and entering the modern world. And we're 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 more in our world, whatever Shakespeare's going to show us. So, so I'm so glad we're doing Chaucer. So glad he's. There's so much in him um, to see. Any questions? I don't believe that.
1: <laughs>
0: Jay, how are you doing? I'm hanging out. Good. <laughs> <laughs> you got it easy. These people have read, read the Iliad. When, when What I was looking at was complete bewilderment.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. No questions? How are you doing?
1: You know, I, I do think that when we were growing up as kids, I think we got an anti-body uh, oh. from the church. Yeah. And the okay. church wasn't true to itself, I think. Mean. You know what you're talking about. I couldn't agree and more. I think, and I think one of the things I, said, you know, on a clinical level, eating disorders are related to this, uh, the hatred of the body. And uh, yeah. to overcome that is incredibly difficult.
0: Yes. and So I agree. You know, so
1: getting people to love their bodies. I remember in graduate school doing an exercise where we had people walk up to a in their underwear and say that what they said, they look at themselves. Talk about what wow. they see. Wow. And wow! It was like it was unbelievably. It yeah. It's yeah. like a psychogram. Yeah. On the own body. Yeah. Not easy. No, I
0: couldn't agree. So sort of there's like, a kind of
1: schizophrenic kind of quality that you're you're divided against yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, you know. So you, how do you get to hold this hair?
0: Let, let me, if I can just elaborate on that for a second. I don't want to take that away, Tom, because I, I don't, I don't. I don't believe theology of the body was an accident. That's why I described Pope John as a doctor. That when when that book came out, yes. that was the, I think I said this to you, that was the, because we we are converts into the church, you know, we came in, but I become conscious of these things, probably a lot like you, but in a different way, but aware of the disorders in our bodies. I want to come at this, because to me it's a much deeper thing, and I, I'm so glad, for what you said, and I believe in it myself, but when that came out, my response, my visceral response was, that was the first time that I saw the Pope as Christ walking through the crowds. I mean, honestly, the, what he was doing is what Christ did when he, so when he walked, you know, in the marketplace, and the woman touched him, and he felt the power, that for me is what was going on with Pope John, walking in the crowds the way they, the way they moved were drawn to him. Even if they didn't physically touch him, it was almost palpable that they felt that and took a strength from it. And when he wrote that book, I thought that's the first time since Freud and Darwin in the modern world, it's the first time that something like a blessing from Christ to people was actually palpable because he took the body on and made it good. It was like a doctor saying this is your problem, here's, here's the way you heal yourself. So I couldn't agree more. I, I just think that the, the harm we've done the body, I'm going to put it differently. If, if, you, if you've got stop the like that for a minute, sorry. Hard work is Chaucer, but I'm going to put it differently. I believe the church has always had that problem. And I, so in one sense, I don't believe that's the fault of the church. Um, I think that's always been true because since the fall, we've always lived with the divided self. Church has always had corruptions. There have always been problems. The body's always been seen as the um, temple of the Holy Spirit. So my sense is, historically, how easy would it have ever been for anybody in any age to body as the temple of the Holy Spirit? You're already in a division because of all all of our loves that are worldly. We're living in a body. We're asked to let the just I just think that's a lifetime calling. And so often we screw it up badly. Historically, I'd say, the, the body has always been a problem forever because of the fall and the worldliness that we're given to. Um, so being overweight too thin, but I, so for me, it's always been a problem. But add to it Descartes, now I'm going where you're going. Add to it Descartes where the mind is cut off from the senses and you set up this schism between the human person and his physical world. Add to that Descartes, Kant all the moderns, bring Freud into it with polymorphous perverse, add the Puritan elements of Luther and Calvin, who hated the body, and what was a problem for us always, how do you, how do you even describe how much it gets exacerbated in the modern world? Becomes something online, and watch the modern field, films dealing with horror, chainsaws, knives, you know, I mean, it, it's a horrifying world, who wouldn't eat more in terror, just trying to live, dealing with the horrors of the modern world? So for me, what's always been a problem after the fall, in the, in the last 400 years, have just become nightmarish. Um, how do you heal them? It's like asking, how do you heal I, I mean, part of the work we're doing together is, that, is trying to make all this clear so you understand not only the problem, but historically that, that Descartes, got a, the modern philosophers have, what they've done with it, Calvin, Luther, you know, that, um, that what was always a problem has taken on such proportions. We're, that's why this thing about holiness and respectability, you know, there's, when you look at respectability and holiness, you can think it's different by degrees. It's not. The difference between respectability, which is secular, and holiness, which is transcendent, are are not differences of degrees, they're differences of nature. To enter into holiness is to enter into a different way of living. Completely. The saints do that. St. Thomas was really heavy. Most saints are thin. But they were still holy. So... The disorders we have in our age, I think, because we live in a secular world, have just so amplified. that um, One of the reasons I'm thinking about the body here is because we finally have reached a poet who, if you go back and read, um, who's the comic um, poet? Not Aeschylus, but um, Aristophanes. It's really funny. You have to go back to Aristophanes to find a, a poet who makes fun of the body the way Chaucer does. And that's before a Christian world. And he did it because he knew the body is funny. I mean, the body's a silly thing. Um, Chaucer helps us to be honest about it. There's nothing to be ashamed about in our bodies. Chaucer's way overweight. There's nothing to be ashamed about. We've we've got these sins, we have to correct them. It's not an easy job, but we can laugh. We can have a sense of humor. we can bring love to the way we deal with it, struggle to be better with it, you know. I think that's one of the things Chaucer's doing. The thing I want to underscore, because I don't know how embarrassed anybody was last week when I read Thundering Farts and, you know, a branding hole, and I didn't know how many heads went down and were shaking but because I, could, I couldn't see, but um, the, the thing I just want to underscore is what Chaucer's saying is don't you? T.S. Eliot, there's not a word, not even the F word or S, there's not a word that isn't potentially poetic. It depends on what we do with that, for God's sake. Shakespeare shows us murder, which is is worse? Jumping into bed when you're married and shouldn't, or murder, viciously killing a person? Murder. I'd say murder is worse. You might as well say, don't ever read Shakespeare because he's dealing with murders and treacheries and betrayals. You know, Chaucer's using all this language and it's doing it in a funny way. We should laugh. He's teaching us um, to be thankful for everything, to know God's at work. Should we take it for granted? I don't believe we should. Chaucer's calling us to something. He's not saying rest on this. And, you know, he's saying, Boethius, there's a good there. Get clo- Remember that center point, the still point at the center. Work to get closer to that center because you'll be happier there. If you're on the periphery in fate, your life is going to be miserable. You're going to be on a treadmill. You'll be miserable. Work with God. Be with Him in everything you do. Be glad. Whatever whatever our sins. Because my sense is if we're glad with our sins, we're probably going to be more forgiving we won't torture ourselves. We'll be more in tune with God. We won't be so frightened to think he's going to kill us or he doesn't like us. Or, you know, growing closer to him, being glad. Being glad for the mercy. Bringing that to what we do. Am I getting too far off here? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you come earlier than you had planned? <laughs> <laughs> God. <laughs> we were at Saint Anne's Seton the other night, and I was doing something with blackboard, and Suzanne was coming over, and I, she was trying to because I'm I'm stumbling over them. And I, I was saying, I got it, I got it. And she kept. I said, I got it, I got it. Finally, she left, and I turned over. I said, I feel like we're to the. I said, I feel like we're at home. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's do let's do Chaucer. Turn to one seventy-seven because this is really important. We may we might not get to our tail stuff this morning. Turn to one seventy-seven. I have to illustrate something along these lines. We're supposed to read the, the three stories about the church functionaries: the partner, the seminar, and the priest, the prior, right? I hope we, we may not get there, but I hope we, those are our tales. But I wanted to do this. I want you to turn to 177. Um, we just heard the Priors' tale. And the host, I, by the way, I hope you see what's going on. The host is kind of like a blue-collar guy who hangs out at bars. Probably has beers and maybe once in a while gets in fights. I love him. If any of you know the Wahlbergs on, television, you know how tough if you watch um, Blue Blue Bloods, uh-huh. mm-hmm. you, they're very tough-minded and very Catholic, but the, you, you can tell they grew up probably in back alleys fighting, deeply Catholic fighting. <laughs> I think of them when I think of the host. He's just very tough-minded, no nonsense, you know, somebody starts something, he says shut up, sit down, um, but he's got that tough-minded, you can see him in a bar having beer and enjoying people and... and So you've got everything in society, but the man who's overseeing it is the host. And he's this blue-collar guy, so he's not elevated or low. He's just an ordinary guy, but he's the one in charge. He's he's made the offer for the gift. Whoever tells the best story, you know. So he turns to Chaucer and says, how about a story from you? This is funny. This was not a sign, so don't worry. But I want to do this because there's something... and once again, I think most teachers are just going to miss this completely. Come near, man. Look up. Look merrily. Make room there. Gentlemen, let this man have place. He's shaped about the waist the same as me. He's obviously fat. You know, and and look what he says about it. He'd likely be a puppet to embrace for any woman. That is too much to get his arms around. Small and fair of face. There's something elvish in his countenance. And this is really wonderful because this is the first chance we get to... This is the only chance we get to see something of Chaucer, other, uh, other than in the lines that sort of hint of him as a man. But there's something elvish in his countenance. He never speaks a word in downance. He doesn't play. You know, he's not facetious. Say something now as other folk have done and let it be a tale of mirth at once, host, I replied. I hope you're not one to take it in bad part if I'm a dunce. I only know a rhyme which for the nonce, I learned. So he's like one of these school bases who's, who's taught mechanically how to put... And that's the best he could do. Now, is there any more BS in this story than what we're getting right now? Um, I only know a rhyme. I've watched what this. Stop, I hope everybody appreciates. It. He's doing rhyme royals. If you watch, this it's so stuns me. If you watch his lines, every one of his lines is so simple to read. Think about the artistry that it would have taken to write a simple line to describe what's actually there and make it rhyme consistently couplet after couplet after couplet through the whole thing. And he's going, oh, I know a rhyme or two. (laughs) (laughs) I take it a bit. if I'm a dunce, I only know a rhyme which for for the nonce I learned that is for nothing. That's good, he said. Well, take your place. It should be dainty judging by your faith. So it's really the irony. (laughs) Does this host have any clue who this man is as we know him? And there's nothing Chaucer will Now, look at the story that Chaucer does. <coughs> I'm not going to read it, because there's... He tells the story of Sir Topaz. This, oh, here we are. We're in this medieval courtly romance world full of knights and lovers, right? So Chaucer's going to... Now he's going to enter into that world. On page 178, go in the, go in the middle. Fulminia Maiden, by, by the way, here's that rhyme stanza, the rhyme royal. A B A B A B, or it's close to it. It's A B A B B A. If I got this right, A Bauer hour Bauer sleep, hour. sleep a, a. Bauer. So A A B A um, A B. So it's a little bit different than the, but you can see it's a variation. It's actually it's six lengths. The royal stands are seven. It's eight. The royal stands is A B A B B C C. So this is a little bit different. I think that's interesting. Fulminia maiden, in bright and bower lay lounging for him hour by hour, who should have been asleep. But he was chased and fled the power of lechery, chased his bramble flower, where red the berries creep. This night is better than others because he doesn't come to this other stuff. <laughs> so, so it befell the day. He said he got in a house or a horse, took his sword and went off for adventure. He wants to find this fairy queen, 179, the birds were singing, let me say, the Sparrowhawk and popinjay. It was a joy to hear the Thrasilcock, tuned his lay. The Turtledove upon the spray sang very loud and clear. So he describes the flowers, he describes the birds. he finally reaches a point where he tires himself, he lies down. Sir Topaz, so it came to pass, wearied of spurring o'er the grass, so very fierce his courage. Down he lay as bold as brass, as east as steel by a morass, where there was splendid forage. So there he dreams of meeting with this fairy queen, he wants to do it, and suddenly he's confronted with this big giant on 180. For not a soul in all that zone there was and not a face was shown, no woman, not a child, until a mighty giant came of, on him, Sir Elephant by name, a perilous man indeed, who said, Sir Knight, by fire and flame, be off by termagant I'll main you and your sturdy steel with mace. Unless you go, to the Queen of Fairy, with harp and pipe and music airy, has dwelling in this place. A A B C C D C C D E F F E. What happened to the rhyme scheme? It so goes to what um, you said a, f- a few minutes, um, Fred. It, it disappears. I mean, it breaks down. It, it starts to collapse. Um, he confronts the giant. Um, he says, "I can't fight you right now because I don't have my armor." and he runs away, and the giants throws rocks after him. He comes to his fellows at, that, at the bar, they drink, and he tells his story of confronting this guy, and, the, and they help him to prepare to go the next day to fight him. So the second part begins in 182. He talks about setting off again, 183, but he drank water from the well and did the knight Sir Percivale, the worthy man at arms, till on a day The host steps up. No more of this for God's dear dignity, our host said suddenly. You're wearying me to death, I say with your illiterate stuff. God bless my soul, I've had about enough. My ears are aching from your frowdy story. The devil takes such rhymes, they're purgatory. That must be what's called doggerel rhyme, he said. Chaucer's embarrassed, and and the story he goes on to tell on eighty-three, on 185, is in prose. Now stop. Stop here for a minute. What's going on? What what happens in the Sir Topaz story? Nothing. <laughs> okay. Why? Because Chaucer, this is almost like a manifesto. Chaucer's showing us indirectly what a story should be. How good is this story? How good is this knight? What's, the, what's wrong with this story? The knight has all these dreams. He sh- he shots are shown. He's riding through. He's describing the flowers. He's describing the birds. You know, everything's lovely. He, make, he confronts nothing, deals with nothing. When he deals with a giant, it's a giant. He has no armor. He runs away. The giant pelts him with stones. Tells the story when he gets back to his buds. Nothing happens. What's the nature of art? We've been talking about this from the beginning. Every story has to be an action. An action has a beginning and a middle and an end. It goes. Through. It has to be this action, not another. Most good stories, you know, from Aristotle have a parapetia, a turn, because generally what makes a story is a moment of self-revelation or a turn, comedy or tragedy. Remember, all, all comedies tend towards a tragedy something happens to a turn and you have a good end. All tragedies start as if you're going to move towards prosperity, and suddenly it ends with comedy. So tragedy has the nature of pointing towards prosperity, turn takes in, calamity. Comedy points towards some disaster that's overcome, and it has a good ending. Okay? But there's an action and a turn, Patia. So great, story, great stories tend to help us reveal something about ourselves. We face something. We have to overcome something. A division within ourselves. What happens in Sir Topaz's story? Absolutely nothing. What he's showing is what that is. What a story should contain. It should have an action. Now look at every one of Chaucer's stories, and it goes back to Boethius. This is incredible. Take take the Miller's story, and stop it. Right at the moment when Absalom comes the first time to woo Allison before she sticks out her bun because remember she sticks out her bun and he goes away with this string you know, of hair and this hole and um, what would happen if the story had ended there? what would happen what would have happened with the Knight's Tale if the story had ended when they were building the arena? What would happen in um, in the in the which one, the, the one of the, which one was telling you about the three thieves? Reeves. No, the three, the, oh. for today, the, oh. the, 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 the all murder. Is that the partners? No, it's not the, it's the Friars' Tale, I think. It's either the Friars or the Summoners. It's the Friars' Tale telling you about the three oh, yeah. thieves, the rebels, and they discover this gold, and the young man goes back and he decides to poison the other two, he comes back, they kill him, they drink the poison, they all die. What would happen in that story if it ends when the kid goes to town, to the, op- the apothecary, and gets the boy, and it stops. What would happen in any of those instances if we looked at those things as a work of art? Take Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream that we just read. Let's say the story stopped right in the middle when the <coughs> kids, the young, the young lovers, entered the forest. And the story stopped satisfied. Yeah, truly. Wouldn't you say, what for? Yeah, why
1: did I bother? So what does
0: every story imply? Satisfaction and end completion. But an action was begun. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It goes somewhere. Something has to happen. As a a work of art for it to be complete, it has to do that, or, or we'll be left incomplete or unsatisfied. So every work of art is a whole. Remember the difference between propaganda and art is propaganda has an end outside of itself. I look at lots of fundamentalist movies today, just talking to him. I look at lots of fundamentalist movies as propaganda. Their end is Jesus. Be saved. If, if you watch them, you just, you can't, it's Savior, Savior. I mean, it, it just, it, you, you can't miss it. It's, it's like they're telling a story to get you to do something. In a good story, the story should be complete in itself. So a story has to have its end in it. its autotelic. It has, to, has a thing of beauty, of truth. Its end is in itself. We're meant to rest there. Didactic art has another end outside of itself. Real art has its end in itself, like a game. Everybody following? So what Chaucer's showing here is a parody. In a sense he's he's telling us how to read. Nothing goes on in this and the rhyme the rhyme is ornamental. It's external. If anybody had their head on and was thinking why in the world is Chaucer doing these rhyme royals, these couplets, if they thought about it at all it would not be an, uh, an excrement or an ornamental. It, not something external, it would be absolutely internal. It's saying there is this constant beauty, <coughs> order, <coughs> harmony, no matter what's going on. Because when you read Sir Topaz, you're seeing nothing happens, the rhymes make no sense, they're artificial. Why does the host say, get the hell out of here, stop. We had to, dear, this is purgatory, stop. And Chaucer tells the story in prose. <laughs> He's making fun and helping us to realize something. He's teaching us how to read what a story should be. Because every story he tells has a beginning and middle and it, it's always buoyed in the sense a justice is achieved no matter what. It has a completeness. That's another way of saying God is at work at the world bringing things out. Take any of those stories and, and stop them in the middle. Would, would any of us have any sense of completeness or beauty or harmony and would we want to go on with it? If you were reading a modern story about absurdity, because most modern lots of moderns say the world is absurd. It has no meaning. It leaves you at the end with this feeling absurd. I'd like to get those guys and showing that there's not something absurd in the in a way that they might feel. <laughs> that's why Chaucer's a bit you no, know, That's why I so identify with a host, I think. Any questions about Chaucer's art and what's going on here? How to read? Those rhymes are not accidental. They're a reflection and expression of a Trinitarian God. He's outside time. He's invisible to us like the Holy Spirit, but he is always present like Christ. There, again, 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 again. It's an extraordinary and we could I mean what's the purpose of this class it's to learn to see Christ where we don't see him he's always here. supernatural love four-year-old pricks herself how often do we see God at work the poets are always helping us to see he's here he's here he's here do we see him do we feel him okay let's go to the the uh, tales I'm going to do this briefly because if I don't, Suzanne's going to have nothing good to say to me. One <laughs> She's already scowling at me. <laughs> I was going to say, I think, you've heard, I think the ship's already sailed. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: you're really getting it today, aren't you? I really am. God. <laughs> it's cold. It is. bringing a blanket next week.
0: Yeah, you should.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, I forgot. Suzanne had said that. I think she'd said it in. Uh-huh. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm only doing that because I want to ride home. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's quick. Um, see if I can do this. I'm I'm not going to go through these the way I'd planned because I'm taking too much time again doing this other stuff, but. We've got The Summoner's Story, The Friar's Tale, and The partner's Tale. And I'm going to go into this suggesting this is the first time Chaucer's showing us what, in our modern terms, we would call lost souls. Lost souls. We've been looking at foibles and weaknesses, disorder, I know those are my sins and foibles and weaknesses in human. in every story that Faulkner showed. Chaucer, God, I've been doing that always. Um, I think I must identify the comic tragic side of both of them. I put these three, I've been putting, grouping, next week we're going to deal with women. I put these three together because they deal explicitly with church functionaries, with church officials. These are all people serving the church. So what he's dealing with in these three stories is something closer to spiritual evil, actual spiritual evil. We've not seen that in the other tales that we've been reading. They've been dealing with sins, adultery, and romantic love, and in, in marriage and out. But this is the first time he deals with real spiritual evil. I don't think it's an accident. I think what what Chaucer is showing is, to whom more is given, more is expected. When those to whom more has been given misuse that, their sins are a graver. So he still treats this comically. These are all funny. But we're now entering spiritual sins within the church. Now, Chaucer's really clear in this, absolutely clear. Remember, we're not in Shakespeare's world. All these people are on their way to Canterbury. It's a holy pilgrimage, they're joined. And a whole nation is unified. Even if they get along, I mean don't get along always and fight with each other, they're still unified by their faith. Um, Chaucer's really clear. He makes no criticism of the church anywhere. The church, in his mind, the Reformation hasn't taken place. The church is fine. What people in the church do is not fine. What they're doing is taking spiritual realities and abusing them. And that's what we get in these three tales. So um, the summoner summons people to, to, to a hearing. He goes to get this woman to appear, and he tries to buy her off, and... Um, this is on page 303 and 304. I, I, we don't have time, but one of the frightening things about this moment is when he, um, as he, um, God, I've got to read this, sorry. This is just, but the reason I'm reading this is one of the women in the evening class, um, Gita, she she sent Doc an image on page 304. The summoner tells a story about a friar um, going to this couple's, this woman's house to, to get money from her. Um, and he, um, wait, sorry, where am I? I'm, no, sorry, sorry. Yeah. yeah, hold on. Yeah, yeah This the, the summoner is the one who calls people um, to account for themselves. And, God, I'm confused. So it's the friar's tale about the summoner. The 303. This is the friar's. This is the summoner's on the tale. Yeah. On page 304, he's, yeah, he's talking about a friar. And he's, he gives an example of somebody who goes to hell and they can't find friars around as if they're holy um, because they're in the church. But he's, wow. he goes down deeper and he finds that's just not the case at all. They're even worse on three through four. Why yes, the angel answered many a million and led him down to Lucifer's pavilion. Satan, the angel said, has got a tail, as broader, broader than a barge's sail. Hold up thy tail, thou Satan. Then said he, show forth thine arson, <laughs> There's, show fight thine arson let like the friar see. The rest ordained for friars in this place. Ere the tail rose a furlong into space, from underneath it there began to drive much as if bees were... So multitudes of friars start swarming out from the tip that is from Satan's bars. And then, you know, he drops the tail and they all go back. So the, the friars are the worst of the worst in hell. Gita sent Suzanne a card. It was a, it was a birthday card. This is what I said. This is what my course is doing to people. It's scary. <laughs> It was a birthday card with a picture of a doggy, one of those comic, you know, and just a funny picture of a dog, with its tail lifted and little specks coming out as if it were passing gas. I I don't know what the card said, it was a birthday card, so it was funny. (laughs) But her take on it was, she couldn't look at that without thinking of Satan and all these, all the friars. All the friars. (laughs) So um, he goes to this couple's house. This is what's horrible. Um, they just lost their child and the woman reminds him of the fact And he says he had a vision, a, a revelation of the child passing to heaven. It's his way of playing on her religious imagination to get her to contribute or at least persuade her husband. He goes to the husband and the husband says, I can't, you've milked a stride. The church has taken all this money, people have been screwing him, these people like him, he has nothing left to give. And then he finally says, I can give you one thing, put your hand under my, here's there, put my, your hand under my bottom. And, um, and he lets out this fart, again. And the, the summoner, or the friar is so horrified by what's happened that he goes off to a manor house. And it's interesting, these people look at this friar as if he's so reverential. So we, we get a picture that how taken people can become with priests or friars. And not see that there's a dark side to them when Ch- when F- Chaucer has opened this thing up, so he does that I think to distance us to know that people can get really attached to religious people. He's been their confessor. He sells, you know they're horrified by a story. They're going to sympathize with him. This is so good. They will sympathize with this guy, this friar. And then their squire gives a different take. He says this is how you can do it, and he says. have have the 12 friars at your house, because you wanted the money for renovations of the house, have them go to this wheel, each of them put their nose on a spoke, and then let you go there and let a fork in the middle, and all of them can share in it. It will be divided into 12 equal parts, which is what Thomas said. So that gives us a a view of the way in which a friar can abuse his office. Or yeah. The friar tells the story of a seminar <clears throat> comes across, now here's where it gets really dark. He comes across a yeoman who finally identifies himself as the devil and the two go along together. They see a farmer who stops. The farmer curses and the, the, um, the summoner says, take him to hell because he's cursed. This is so good. And the devil says, no, because he really didn't mean it. So this question of how we use words again is really important. Um, Three o two, take. Oh wait, sorry. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. Am I doing this right? Three o two. Um, yeah, three o two. Um, he tries. He tries. Isn't this? She, yeah, she. He tries to get this woman. He, he's extorting her. He's trying. He's trying to convince her that she's committed a sin, and he will he will amend it if she will pay him or even at least give him this pan. And she says, no, and um him away. Actually, this is really important. 302, I've never had a summons in my life. I never cuckled my poor old man. And as for you and your frying pan, the hairiest, blackest devil out of hell, carry you off and take the pan as well. Now remember, this person who appeared to be a yeoman is really a devil. So um, the summoner and the devil have been going on together. When the summoner gets to this house and tries to extort this woman, the devil's with him. He looks like a yeoman, but the summoner knows he's the devil because the devil admitted to him, said, I'm the devil. And the summoner's happy to go along because he thinks he can make more money. The woman at this point, this is really interesting to me. The hairiest, blackest devil out of hell, carry you off and take the pan as well. Seeing her kneel and curse, the devil spoke. Now mother Mabel, is all this a joke. You really mean the things you say? The devil, she said, can carry him away with pan and all unless he will repent. No, you old croy, I have no such intent. The seminar said, There's no repentance, too. The devil at that moment takes him away. And the pan. Now I've got to leave right now because we've got to go, but I want to two two things here. I'll come back to the partner's tale because the partner to me is the one person who most openly does something. That raise a question whether he isn't genuinely a lost soul. The souls we get in the other two stories are about people who are damned in the story. Remember, the three murderers are damned, and here a summoner doesn't repent; he's damned. So we've got stories about people. My, hold on, just my question is whether the um, whether the summoner or the, Um, The partner is down. That's next week. But here's what I want to go to. The woman says, um, the devil carry him away with pan and all, unless he will repent. Does her curse send him to hell? No. 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 Okay, explain it. Well, had had he repented, he wouldn't have gone to hell. He had that choice. He had a choice. How, because... And so many, this is really, hold on just a second. This is so more important to me than I can tell you. One of the great themes that we've not talked about that run through Chaucer is giving your word and keeping your vows. That's a constant in every story, even if people break it. But virtue requires holding a vow. So what, your words you speak matter. They even mattered here. Remember the farm, farmer cursed the person and the sevener said, take him. And the devil said, no, he didn't mean it. Here's a woman who clearly meant it She said, curse you, the devil, unless you repent. And he goes to hell. My question is, how do we understand her role? Does her cursing him cause him? And and clearly, is there anything more to say about this woman other than that he had a choice? Because he did, and and he refused, he did not repent.
1: Say in some way she created the opportunity for him to repent.
0: Here's my question because I'm sorry, I've got to go. When I read this, I was stunned by how much is she acting in Peter's behalf? Christ said to Peter, he, He gave them that authority at the beginning of the church. Who you loosen will be loosened. Who you bind will will be bound. He gave him an extraordinary, extraordinary authority. That's extraordinary. To the Church of Peter. That authority was so great. I think because the problems the church would deal with, because evil itself is overpowering to all of us. How much is she speaking in Peter with Peter in that moment? Because she's cursing him. And, 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 by, and also giving that exception, unless you repent. That's extraordinary because that's just she's a Christian. She's just a she's in the church. But she's speaking with an amazing authority in that moment, exactly in the terms in which we're to understand Peter. Go to, go to hell, unless you repent. I just leave that with you, okay? Because I've got to go, and, and hope that you'll speak about it. Can I, can I ask a favor, please? I'm, I've got to get doctor. I'm really sorry.